Very nice to be able to talk quietly with you for a minute. Thank you, Kermit. I feel the same way. You know, there's something I was going to ask you. Excuse me, Julie. Hey, Kermit, yeah. your nephew Robin just fell in a tuba. <laughs> what? He fell in a tuba, but it's okay. Animals getting him out. <laughs> hey, Robin, are you all right? Yeah, it's fun. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, man, that Julie Andrews is a delight. She is. There's, oh, I'm going to offend someone by not going into like full depth on this bio, but yeah, no, she's, she's amazing. <laughs> yeah, she was wonderful. Uh, I know you've had a rough week and uh, we won't get into it, but uh, hope you're feeling better and I hope we can, uh, you know. Brighten our spirits a little bit by talking about these two, what I thought were really good episodes. They were. And the, I mean, we'll, we'll get to the Julie Andrews episode in, in a moment, but it's weird because it feels like we've, we've had a lot of Muppet Show episodes that play with form in ways, in a lot of ways, but the Julie Andrews episode feels like the most archetypal Muppet Show episode we would have seen. There's not that much of a, a meta backstage story or anything like that or, a shifting of form or a, a combination or a collapse of form. It's just, this is what it looks like when the Muppet Show's running. I'm offended that you are not taking the cow into consideration. Don't have a cow. Uh, both these episodes are pretty, what you, uh, pretty standard episodes, which is a good thing. That's not a backhanded compliment in the slightest. It's actually, if I were to show someone an episode of the Muppet Show and be like, this is what people generally refer to when they're talking about the Muppet Show. It could very well be the Julie Andrews episode. Uh, this is a feed of Lunatic Daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started talking about these two great episodes of the Muppet Show, I'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and then LunaticDaring.com, where you can find our watch list, our bibliography, and of course, all of our episodes. We're getting near the end of season two already. Time is sort of expanded and contracted in the last year, so I'm not sure how much time has actually passed, but it seems pretty quick for us to be that close. What's funny is this isn't going to come out for months. <laughs> Fair point. So, All right. So time is even weirder. All right, let's 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 talk about some Julie Andrews. So let's get started. Okay. It's the Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Miss Julie Andrews. Ah! Nick, there is one movie. Probably there are others, but there's one movie that I know you have seen and I have not, and that is The Sound of Music. Why don't you lay it down for me? Tell me about this, I'm going to use the word icon that we watched tonight. Honestly, that word's often overused, but I think it, it absolutely fits here. Julie Andrews, born Julia Elizabeth Wells on October 1st, 1935. My geography is lacking, so please forgive me if I pronounce this wrong. She was born in Walton-on-Thames in Surrey, England. So just a, a random tidbit, she was actually a product of an affair, but she wouldn't learn that until she was 15. But up until that point, to the best of her knowledge, she was born to her mother, Barbara, who would later become Barbara Andrews, and her father, Ted Wells, who actually helped evacuate children during the, the Blitz over London. Oh, wow. So Julie, she was born in 1935. She would be around... See, World War II started in 39, if I remember correctly, in, in Europe. So she was about four when things started popping off. Her parents would split around the time that the war became an issue and remarried later on. Her 
Mother would remarry in 1943 to a man named Ted Andrews, who she would be performing with. We'll get back to him in just a moment. Her father would remarry someone named Winifred Burkhead. During the war, her mother and her stepfather entertained the troops through the the Entertainment's National Service Association, which I imagine is something like the British USO. Um, she would later be sent to live with her mom and her stepfather to sort of encourage her dreams because she she had caught the bug to perform early. She would be performing with her mother and her stepfather kind of impromptu. She wasn't billed or anything like that. But her stepfather during the war in particular was also sort of violent and an abusive alcoholic to the extent that she had to put a lock on her door. Of course, he would also fund lessons at the Cone Ripman School in London. And he would also later pay for voice lessons with her instructor, Lillian Stiles Allen. Julie has been performing, and I, I say that like I know her, <laughs> Julie Andrews has been performing for around eight decades, and that starts in her teen years. Starting in 1945, for two years, she would be part of spontaneous and unbilled performances with her mother and her stepfather. Her professional solo debut would be at 12 years old at the London Hippodrome singing the aria Je suis de Tania. What are you going to sing for us? I'd like to sing the Polonaise from Munich. Oh, lovely. Just the kind of junk I like. As part of a musical called Starlight Roof. And the interesting thing for that is the setup was that a performer on stage would call out to the audience to see if anyone wanted uh, a balloon animal and she would raise her hand and she would go on and he would ask if she had any sort of talent and she would, she would say that she could sing and then she would sing this aria, which, as I understand it, is a pretty difficult aria. <laughs> just knock the audience out, effectively. She would become the youngest solo performer to be seen in a royal variety performance by King George VI and Queen Elizabeth on November 1st, 1948. She made the move into radio, like many of our other guests have. Um, she would perform musical interludes for a comedy series called Up the Pole. She was also cast in Educating Archie from 1950 to 1952. Her first film role was actually a voiceover role for an Italian animated film called La Rosa di Baghdad. Uh, it was renamed The Singing Princess in English. Her Broadway debut would come in 1954 in a musical called The Boyfriend. Any girl who's reached the age of 17 or thereabout has but one desire in view. She knows she has reached the stage of needing one to care about. Nothing else will really do. The interesting thing about this point in time is in England, she was kind of the primary breadwinner for her family. And so her moving to New York to pr pursue that goal was a bit of a difficult decision. In 1955, she was in a television broadcast called High Tour with Bing Crosby, and it got mixed reviews. Arguably, her first breakout role was actually as Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady, and this was the Broadway production of it. I could have danced all night. I could have danced. 
she sort of cut her teeth on this role. The director spent 48 hours straight with her, getting her to learn how to inhabit the character and basically get over her nerves and a lot of the other things that would help her in her later career. It's a tough role. She performed in that role for a long time. She had impressed uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein, and they wrote a Cinderella TV musical specifically for her. I'm as mild and as meek as a mouse when I hear a command I obey but I know of a smart in my house Um, she received an Emmy nomination for her role in that as well. So Julie Andrews has performed in a lot of things. We could dedicate a full podcast in the same sense that we're dedicating a full podcast to Jim Henson. I expect you to list them all. Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> we will be here all night. So we're going to hit a couple of, I guess, a couple of highlight points. First off, she was passed up for the role or for the, the film version of My Fair Lady because it was assumed that she wasn't a big enough name to make money. It's one of those sort of show business is a business and they want to make their return on investment thing. I don't think there was ever any sort of a a dig against her talent so much as they just wanted to have a bankable star. And so Jack Warner just didn't think that she had enough recognition. Yeah, so they got Audrey Hepburn. So they got Hepburn. Who doesn't sing in the movie. I, I haven't seen it. She's dubbed. Oh. I could have danced all night. Now, there are tracks that you can find of Audrey Hepburn singing, and she's not bad. I could have danced all night, I could have danced all night, and still have begged for But she's not Julie Andrews. One of the controversies was that they didn't, they didn't bring Julie Andrews into the movie. They brought in Audrey Hepburn because she was a bigger star, and then it turned out that Audrey Hepburn doesn't even do her own singing, which Julie Andrews obviously would have done. Kind of a controversial move. and It just seems kind of short-sighted. In 1963, she would begin work on Mary Poppins. She, had, she initially did not decline the role because she was pregnant and wanted to go back to London for a child to be born. She eventually said yes, and the, uh, the entire production, as you would expect with a Disney production at that time, was pretty strenuous. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Mary Poppins is nominated for 13 Academy Awards. It wins five of them, including Best Actress. And in the most classy way possible, Julie decided to thank Jack Warner for <laughs> passing her up or in her acceptance speech because My Fair Lady was running up against Mary Poppins at, at that same time. The winner is Julie Andrews Mary Poppins. Thank you very much for this lovely honor. It's a wonderful memento of a very, very happy time. Finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. There's two movies that make her an icon. Uh, that and The Sound of Music? Yeah. She was also in a number of the Pink Panther movies. Um, the, the Sound of Music in 1965. 
she's not really in in films much between 1991 and 2000, but she sees a, a bit of a career revival in the Princess Diaries movies, and she's she's active on television. There's a, a production of The King and I that was out in 1992. She's also active in theater, performing and putting it together during 1993 and 1995 through 97. She was in Victor Victoria. About 20 years ago, way down in New Orleans, a group of fellas found a new kind of music, and they decided to call it jazz. We, we mentioned that she has about eight decades of performing behind her, and there's going to be a lot of demand on her voice. There are a lot of very strong production things. In 1997, it was believed that she developed nodules on her vocal cords. There's an operation to remove the nodules, which she has gone on record saying she doesn't believe they were there. She just thought that they were strained. There was an incident where she lost, she effectively lost her singing and speaking voice for a time. She would sue the hospital for malpractice and they, they would settle out of court in 2000. Uh, there would be four subsequent operations to re- restore her speaking voice, but not necessarily her singing voice. And she wouldn't actually sing on film again until the Princess Bride sequel. Princess Diaries. Yes, thank you. Princess Bride sequel would be rad. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. She would not sing on screen again until the Princess Diaries 2. Uh, and even then, the, the song was composed with an, an eye toward a more limited vocal range. Some girls are fair. Some are jolly and fit. Some have a well-bred air or a well-honed wit. Each one's a jewel with a singular shine. A work of art with its own rare design. In the year 2000, she was... Is it called knighting if you... If you're making someone a dame. It's the equivalent, but, you know, we live in a patriarchy, so who knows. In the year 2000, she received the distinction of being dame commander of the Order of the British Empire for her contribution and performances in the arts. Seeing that a lot on some on these uh, bios. A lot of members of the BCE. I feel like if you look at the cast of Harry Potter, you're going to see the same thing. Yes. In 2008, she published Home, a memoir of her early years. It seems like it's an interesting read. I, I hadn't had the time to, to pick that up this week, but I'm probably looking at reading that in the near future. In the year 2011, she received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. More recently, she's been in the Despicable Me movies as a voice. She was involved in a number of the Shrek movies as well. And Aquaman, randomly. I, yeah. I didn't realize that. But she's been doing a lot of voice work. And she's got more work coming out through the next couple of years so she's she's still active and she's still producing great work this has been a very very sparse biography of a very very impressive woman and i i don't know if i can overstate that enough there's no way we're gonna sit down and go through her entire career the only things i'd like to mention personally are she was in alfred hitchcock's torn curtain which is a fairly lesser hitchcock she did several movies like you said that with the pink panther with her husband blake edwards like sob and uh, 10 with dudley moore oh and then her crowning achievement she was in the tooth fairy with uh, Dwayne the rock johnson i'm sure the highlight of her career and she was in the movie version of uh, victor victoria as well we'll talk a little bit when we get to it about her relationship with the muppets before the muppet show because mm. she did do a couple of television specials with the muppets um, before this that they allude to in this episode Sweeping the clouds 
Show episode 217, featuring guest star Julie Andrew, was produced between November 23rd and 25th, 1977. It would premiere in the UK on December 25th, 1977, just in time for Christmas, and in the United States, February 20th of the following year. It was directed by Peter Harris. Written by the same guys. Beginning with her cold open, Scooter stops into the dressing room to let Julie know that it's almost time, and she's... Thank you. Thank you. I'll be ready. I'll be ready just so long as nobody else drops in. Of course, if you say that, then a bunch of Muppets are going to drop in from the ceiling and... Starts raining freckles. They're just up there waiting for... waiting for that prompt. Like... Is that the screaming thing? I think it was the screaming thing was in there too, the windmills of my mind guy. I think so. These are a couple of fairly violent episodes. Well, the second one is very violent. Fair, yeah. Um, from there we go to the theme, uh, Gonzo's Horn Lights Up, which I think we haven't seen yet. No, this is a new one. Sort of had the uh, the starlight effect. It must draw some power, though, because it lights up, but then the lights in the theater go dark. Or maybe it's like a vacuum cleaner. He's got it on a circuit with other things, and just when you turn it on, it just blows everything out. Following the Muppet Show theme, Kermit comes on stage to introduce Julie Andrews. Again to the Muppet Show. Hey, we're very excited around here tonight. Our guest star is a wonderfully talented lady and a good friend of mine. And here she is now, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Julie Andrews. Without really overstating much, because Jim and the guys were already familiar with her, but also she was a superstar and she had a previous relationship with the Muppets. So they just sort of go straight into it. Um, Julie sings "The Lonely Goat Herd" from *The Sound of Music*. High on a hill was a lonely goat herd. Lady, old lady, old lady, oh. Loud was the voice of the lonely goat herd. Lady, old lady, old lady. I realized that I'd heard it, but I forgot that it was from that. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the first songs that most people will think of when they think of yodeling. It's set in a nice Austrian village. The goat puppet they used is pure nightmare fuel. I don't know if that's because of the puppet in particular, or just because I generally find goats to be kind of unsettling. Have you ever watched those screaming goat videos? Uh, unfortunately. We get a lot of the main line of the cast showing up as well. Kermit shows up uh, as a prince. I think Gonzo's in there as well. Yeah, there's a little, in front of the house, there's a little, like, dining area. It's strange, like, Gonzo's sitting at a table with Miss Mousy. Mm-hmm. Rolf is there. And I wanted to point out in this, there is a character that we missed before. Who? Kinda. Annie Sue Pig. I had questions about that. I wasn't sure if that was Piggy or not, because usually when we see the female pig puppets, they don't have the eyes. No, that is Annie Sue Pig. We are going to meet her in full next season when she becomes a truly realized character. Her first appearance was actually in the Elton John episode. I missed that one, but she was just kind of a background singer. In this, she Mm. does sing, and she's played by Louise Gold, uh, and she will be in the future. But uh, so Annie Sue Pig, she's um, she's best known to people as Piggy's rival. But that's not really going to start until we get to the next season. So, but uh, we did miss her, but she does show up in this and she does sing. Uh, yeah, this number is a lot of fun. It is. I feel like I've heard the song more than I've actually realized. I think it's a, it's a really nice set. It's a well done set. She just comes on and is her charming self and sings her butt off like she like she did. 
and uh, and yeah, it kind of gets everybody in on the act, even if you don't really know what's going on, even if you don't know the sound of music, it's still a lot of fun. I would say it's a very Julie Andrewsy way to introduce Julie Andrews. There are many sides to Julie Andrews. I think to a lot of people, she's got a kind of squeaky clean image. Uh, I'm sure that's not who she is in real life. I don't know who she, I mean, her husband was kind of a, like a notorious bastard. So I'm sure, you know, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's just a pleasant opener that, like you said, though, she was a giant star. Like this would have been huge. The Sound of Music, like I said, I haven't seen it, but The Sound of Music was huge. Then you tune into The Muppet Show to see Julie Andrews and she starts off with a number from The Sound of Music. Get out of here. Yeah. There's another real animal in this episode. <laughs> I've got a question about this, and I'm not really sure how it shakes out. Because in the Henson biography, it talked about how seriously the Union took their position as being part of a union in the UK, and how mm-hmm. important it was for them to finish work at a specific time. Is there a stipulation in place that says that if you have so many animal or things that seem like animals, that you have to have a certain amount of actual animals? No, I just think they're trying something. You know what happens, like, unlike shows, especially like talk shows or like comedy shows, talk shows, you know, variety shows, sketch shows, they'll be like, can we get a cow? And it's it's surprisingly easy to get an animal for your show. Pretty much any animal out there, there's someone who will rent it to you. This season, we've had a we've had real chickens. We've had a real dog. We've had a real pig. And now we get a real cow. This is my favorite of all those appearances, by the way, just because I think it gets the best jokes. Also, it doesn't seem like the owl's been tranquilized. How could you tell? It's a cow. (laughs) So, yeah, Kermit comes backstage. It's a very funny moment, though. Kermit comes backstage and there's a cow there. Hubba And then Scooter comes in. Yeah, Chief? Scooter, uh, refresh my memory. Uh, Was there a cow on that opening number? No. Then what's a cow doing backstage? (laughs) That cow right there! Uh, Kermit, that's a cow! Scooter pauses that maybe the cow snuck into the theater. Cows don't sneak. Snakes sneak. I'll find out who it belongs to. Okay. Cows don't sneak, sneak, sneak. Snakes sneak. Yeah. I think one of my biggest laughs in the episode is when he says, uh, Scooter, we find out who this cow belongs to. And then Scooter just leans in and goes, Who do you belong to? So let's talk about that for a second, though, because realistically, a talking frog told him to find out who the cow belongs to. Oh, I'm not blaming Scooter. I think it makes sense. Backstage story for this episode is there's a cow. I'm not complaining. I like I like the cow. Hey, Chief. Hmm? Well, so far, nobody knows nothing about the cow. Well, keep trying. We cannot have a cow backstage. Mm. Well, look on the bright side. Hmm? At least you won't have to give us milk money anymore. From there, we go to our, our Muppet News Flash and our poor set-up-on Muppet News fan. <sighs> yeah. A plane carrying a load of sports equipment was forced to jettison some of its cargo. Among the items tossed out were 10,000 ping pong balls. <laughs> and one bowling ball. Guess what happens next? <laughs> I, I'm going to assume a concussion. Yeah. An increase in his premium. First of all, that is not 10,000 ping pong balls. Those are just the ones that hit hard enough to get through the roof. Fair enough. And second of all, this is the first time where like, he gets hit with the bowling ball and he goes out cold. He like his head hits the table like he goes down. Get him some medical attention. Then again, you drop a bowling ball from a plane, hit you in the head. You're lucky you're still breathing. Or that you still have a head. <laughs> or that you still have a head. Oh, Gonzo. The great, great Gonzo. The great Gonzo. Ladies and gentlemen, in a major- 
major feat of death-defying music robotics never seen before. Uh, the Great Gonzo will perform on bagpipes the Ina Kleina knock music from a flagpole ten feet in the air. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Great Gonzo! Gonzo performs a little night music by Mozart on bagpipes while sitting on a flagpole, which is being chewed on by a beaver because... Let's talk about this little son of a bitch beaver. The beaver knew what he was doing, and Gonzo yeah. knew what the beaver was doing, too. Yeah, the beaver starts chewing the flagpole, and Gonzo looks down, and his eyes get even wider. But I, I admire his dedication. He kept playing. The bagpipes are not a subtle instrument. They're not... No. <laughs> it's not a precision instrument, per se. He just offended all of Scotland. It's a very, it's a very famous piece of Mozart music. Gonzo does a pretty good job of it, I think. It's hard. It's hard to tell. <laughs> I like the idea of Gonzo doing a good job with it. Fair enough. Yeah, eventually the beaver gets all the way through the flagpole, and uh, it's a great shot of it just going timber. But I did like when he came off stage, though. Are you okay, Gonzo? Oh, sure. I just fell 11 feet onto solid concrete. Oh, oh that's too bad. It looks like you're going to have to get a new bagpipe. Yeah, I'm having it made out of solid beaver skin. Before we move on past this part. Mm-hmm. We have now got it uh, canonically established that Gonzo is very much a leg man because yeah. when he sees the cow, his first thought is nice legs. Yeah, Gonzo Gonzo is very enamored with the cow. This episode is, uh, it is common knowledge to most people that Gonzo is into chickens. I think people don't realize, first of all, how fluid he was early on and how slow that came to be. Because in this, he seems to like cows and chickens. Maybe he just found the right chicken, but I think he's more into just barnyard animals. I mean, he loves the fact that this cow has two pairs of nice legs. It's a twofer. And he asked her on a date. He's very direct. He just wants someone to dance with him. We'll get to that in a moment. Sorry about that beaver. I don't know how it got in here. Usually we're much more careful about who we allow in this place. Gonzo looks at the cow and is like, yeah, I can tell. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the stuff that goes on backstage doesn't go on if you've got even an ineffective security guy. That's true. <laughs> This is not our UK spot. This is, uh... Nope, we get a little more classical music, though. Yes. I've got to stop assuming that we see when we see Rolf at the piano that it's a UK spot. It's like yeah. first season trained me for that. Rolf is playing Moonlight Sonata, which is a Beethoven piece. Arguably his most famous piece. Outside of maybe, like, the Ninth Symphony, yeah. And for Elise, as well, I would say, He's... is up there. But this actually came out during his lifetime. Piano Sonata number 14 in C-sharp minor for the nerds out there. We see the moon rise in the background. Is, but it's it's a pretty straightforward musical piece. It isn't, it isn't. Like, yes, Rolf's playing it and the moon rises, but he kind of gets off He kind of gets off uh, key then because he gets distracted by the moon. So Rolf kind of gets uh, gets out of sync. You know, he like has to catch up on the pages. I think he like gets out of, he's playing in the wrong octave at one point. Um, so it's not a perfect rendition of Moonlight Sonata, which is obviously the point. Um, he, he brings it back together at the end, but it does get a little sloppy there in the middle while he's distracted by just this crescent moon rising. I don't know why he'd be so flummoxed by it. I assume he was there when they set it up, <laughs> but maybe the joke is he wants to howl at it or something, you know, dogs and moons. I don't know.
we get to the funniest thing in the episode for me. So I, I mentioned at the, the top of the episode that this would be one of the, uh, one of the episodes, if not the episode that I would recommend to someone if they weren't really familiar with the Muppets and they wanted to know kind of what the, the Muppet show was about. This talk spot right here, <laughs> it's emblematic of that Muppet style humor. Kermit and Julie start trying to have a conversation about effectively, like, what do the Muppets do for entertainment? Scooter comes on to tell Kermit that your nephew Robin just fell in a tuba. But it's okay because animals, animals getting him out. And so then we see. <laughs> then we hear a big fat note from the tuba and it's just a green blur fly across the screen. But Robin's cool with it, though. It's it's sort of like those of us who remember riding in the back of trucks without seatbelts. He runs back for more. He's having a good time. For once, being small is working out in his favor. And then they try to continue the conversation. And then the Flying Borsalino Brothers. Hi-ho, it's Chad here. We obviously mean the Zucchini Brothers and not the Flying Borsalino Brothers, but we say it a couple of times. Luckily, I found a high-tech way to fix it, and you'll never know the difference. Yeah, Fozzie comes out to ask Kermit a question about whether the Zucchini brothers can try out their cannonball, can do a test run basically on their cannon, and then Fozzie runs off to tell him no, and then uh, the Zucchini brothers comes flying across the screen, (laughs) and uh, Fozzie runs back in and goes, sorry, I didn't get to him in time, (laughs) and then another one flies back the other way, and then Fozzie comes back in and goes, sorry, they've got two cannons, (laughs) and then the kicker. Sweetums and Fog are playing badminton. So? Well, they're playing with my chicken. (laughs) I have a question about this, though. I get you're playing badminton, like a chicken, a shuttlecock. They look, you know, similar color, at least. I I get that. My chicken? We have not established his chicken relationships yet. Does he own this chicken? Is he dating her? He just says, they're playing badminton with my chicken. Gonzo's also scouted chickens as talent. It turns into like a tennis joke. They're moving their heads back and forth. And it's more effective than the at the dance tennis joke set that we had from a few episodes (laughs) back. That is true. There's a rhythm to it, sort of like the uh, the library sketch at the end of the first season. You've got so many disparate parts, and then it zips together, and you've got that rhythm going. It's a really nice and solid sketch. It's very funny. And then Julie finally asks, what do you guys do around here? And Kermit's like, eh, not much. <laughs> not much. While they just keep flying back and forth, Robin comes back a couple more times. Um, everybody's just having a blast to get launched through the air. It's like the most Muppet thing ever. You're right. Like, if I was going to show someone, like, define the Muppets, this, is, this would be up there. It's just so very Muppet. From here, we, we go to At the Dance, which... Kinda. It's kind of a fake out a little bit, right? Conso sings the song, Won't Somebody Dance With Me. Invoking a pre-Whitney Houston, Whitney Houston, without the same pipes, obviously. Are you saying Dave Goals does not have the pipes of Whitney Houston? How dare you? Look, everyone's got hills to die on, and this seems like an easy one. <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna die on the hill that Whitney Houston was a good singer. Yeah, best voice of her generation. You're gonna die on that hill. I think you're okay. All right. So weird side note about Whitney Houston because we haven't had a tangent yet this episode. Sure. My dad, mm-hmm. who I love, as kooky as he is, right? <laughs> yeah. I've heard stories. Military guy. And I was I was growing up in the early 90s. So around the time that the bodyguard came out, I remember being in rooms full of men who could potentially kill you with a napkin. who were all getting really misty when she hit that high note. <laughs> hey, 
guys are just like full on callous, no sympathy for anything, all sorts of pithy sayings about how they don't have sympathy for anything. Right. But the second she hits that high note while she's wearing that dress and Kevin Costner's off in the background being like, I could love this woman. All guys in that room are just like, yeah, this is what America is. This is, <laughs> this is what we're trying to defend. At her best, she was pure magic. Amazing. Someone to care. Someone somewhere. starts off like at the dance, but then the music morphs and Gonzo steps in the frame and starts singing a song. So one of the things to also mention, I think Piggy is on her best behavior tonight because isn't Kermit dancing with Miss Mousie? Yeah, I wanted to talk about this. There should be a brawl breaking out in the middle of this. Kermit is dancing with Miss Mousie. Okay, maybe it's not over. But then Piggy's in there dancing too. There's no way. Here's the thing, though. This breaks all of my immersion. Kermit also had a successful talk or a semi-successful talk spot with a female guest. Two sketches in a row where Piggy is behaving herself. That's true. Does Julie Andrews have some sort of power over Miss Piggy? I think even Piggy's like, I got nothing on you. (laughs) You know? Just watching Piggy try to outsing Julie Andrews and getting very, very depressed. I would say this is a archetypal Gonzo song. Hmm. Gonzo's solo songs are usually about being alone or weird or lovelorn out of place or his his dreams that aren't coming true. You know, it's a very Gonzo-y song. They still manage to slip in some jokes, though. Oh, yeah. It kind of turns into At The Dance. It's weird. It's like a, they manage, it starts off as At The Dance and then it seems like it's a fake out. But then they still bring in some corny At The Dance jokes. Excuse me. You're excused. So it kind of works as both things at the same time. At Gonzo's expense, of course. Of course. Here we go! So I'm getting significantly worse at figuring out which one is the UK spot. That's fair. The fact is, in this modern day where we're not worried about broadcast, where it's streaming or it's on DVD, we call it, we talk about it being the UK spot because it's interesting, but at the same time, like, they're just part of the show. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. it's interesting to talk about just because putting yourself back in the 70s, thinking that this wasn't in the episode they aired in the U.S., that's fascinating. And looking at it in terms of like, why did they decide to take this two minutes and not have it be? Or, you know, why, why, why this number? Why not this number? So, I mean, that's interesting. But all in all, they're just, it's just another number. Yeah, it's a song called Borneo. Okay, so I want to talk about this real quick because I tried to look it up. So it's written by this uh, guy named uh, Walter Donaldson, who was like a protege slash employee of the great Irving Berlin. It's It's kind of a novelty rhyming song. I couldn't find anything about it. It's not even listed on his Wikipedia page that he wrote it. Uh, So it must not have been very popular. He wrote songs like Making Whoopi, My Blue Heaven, and the Al Jolson hit Mammy. So, like, he has songs that were popular. And uh, Borneo was apparently not one of them. So I'm guessing little Jimmy Henson heard it on the radio when he was 10. (laughs) I'm not sure where it came from, but it's definitely not a huge song. What do you think of this new drug band? They're not the Gugulala. They're not. They're fine. Um, I like the one that looks like Fidel Castro. There's one that was like twanging on something that looks like Fidel Castro. But yeah, uh, I'm still getting used to this new drug band. They're like, they're more refined looking, you know, and there's more variety to them. And I I like the the lead singer girl. She's great. 
it's nice to give Luis Gold a main character in one of the bands. But the number's fun. I was going to say, not as good as the next song. But. Oh, no, not even. Way down on Borneo Bay. We see Kermit go in to visit Julie in her dressing room, where they make reference to an earlier special that they both worked together on. Yeah, the uh, I think it was 1975's My Favorite Things with Julie Andrews, where she had the Muppets on there. Yeah, And this is actually a song that was co-written by Julie. Mm-hmm. She calls it the song for Kermit. It's also known as When You Were a Tadpole. When you were a tadpole and I was a fish when the whole world had barely begun as far back as that this is nice like it's just a sweet little love song to a frog i guess one of the the tropes that i enjoy a lot especially in something that's long running is just the reconnecting of old friends people who have a pre-established and affectionate relationship seeing each other after not having seen each other for some time um, and then just picking up and running with it. From a storytelling standpoint, it's a really good way to establish a character bond. But in this, in the context of the song, it's just, it makes the episode feel a little bit warmer. I mean, she's a very warm presence in general. It's connecting it to their past together. It's, it's funny because we're talking about these characters and stuff on the show, but in reality, she does have a relationship with Kermit. They have been friends. They have done things together. And she wrote this song for and about him. And that's true. This scene kind of blurs the lines a little bit. Mm-hmm. And my first wish. What's that? That you would love me too. Because I've loved you since you were a tadpole. And I was a fish. This is a reunion. Now, it's only been a couple of years, but it's still a little reunion. It's still a song that she sa- she wrote and sings for Kermit. She sings it beautifully. And uh, yeah, and it's a very sweet little song, but there's real emotion in this. Doesn't necessarily fit in with the rest of the episode. It's just a little interstitial, but you're just kind of, it's kind of displaced from everything else. But it's also just very sincere. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of jokes before it starts, but then it's just a very sincere song and a beautiful song and um, very sweet. And I... Guess what? A fish. A fish. What is not sweet is uh, eagles who act like boomers. Some eagles would uh, cut off their beaks despite the freeloaders, but... I live near Philadelphia now. I gotta be careful about what I say about eagles. (laughs) Greetings! As an American eagle, I feel it is my duty to say a few words about the glories of industry and technology. He's got a lot of feelings. He's very upset. So the thing is, every time I see Sam and the Muppet News guy on the same episode, it's a lot harder to just sort of look at Sam and be like, Sam, you want to know what what hard times really look like? (laughs) Right. Why don't you host the news for a night or two? It'll be a good time, I promise. (laughs) Yeah. You're probably going to get hit in the head, just to warn you. Yeah, so Sam delivers a very impassioned speech. One would say McCarthy-esque speech, not Charlie McCarthy, by the way. Speech about conservationists. There are those among us who would silence our factories, shut down our mills, and grind our highways to a halt 
Yea, verily, today the very fiber of our industrialization is under attack from a small, subversive group of namby-pamby conservationists. And he sounds like a 2021 Republican. If you did this sketch now, would you have to change a word of it? I mean, there'd be a lot of pot shots at Matt Gates, but... This is the same rhetoric that conservatives use now to, to deny climate change. And it's it's going to screw up our industry and all this stuff. Like, it's the same nonsense. Um, but Sam is very, very against conservationists. Now, my favorite moment is he pulls up a list. He goes, this list, which is definitely a Joseph McCarthy reference. I have here a list, a list of the animals these so-called conservationists would have us protect. And he goes down the list of endangered animals. He's like, he's like scoffing at them until. (laughs) The mountain lion, the alligator, the coyote, the timber wolf, the American bald eagle. Dear conservationists, I never thought it would happen to me. (laughs) So I I did. He also used the word verily in this (laughs) speech, which I really appreciated. And then, yes, of course, at the end, he finds the last one on the list is the American bald eagle, which stops Sam in his tracks, making him the ultimate boomer who does not care about anybody else until it affects him. (laughs) And then he drops a great line where he says, this list is now inoperative. I'm not even sure I know what that means. (laughs) I'm not sure that's the right word. Probably not. <laughs> but it was funny. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Who says Mamby Pamby? Uh, but yeah, I liked his Joe McCarthy impression. This list. I have a list. <laughs> Joe McCarthy. Fucking monster. Have you no stance of decency, sir? So we're, we're leading up to what is probably my favorite joke of the episode because <laughs> I've got a terrible sense of humor. <laughs> yep. Uh, but we we go backstage and Gonzo comes in search of the cow because he believes they had a date. And given Gonzo's track record with waiting for someone to confirm that he's got a date, it's very up in the air as to whether or not they actually did. Scooter tells Gonzo that the cow is gone. And Gonzo, ever the opportunist, decides that he's going to phone a chicken instead. When the cow doesn't show for his date, he goes, eh, I guess I'll call a chicken. So, I mean, he's got like a side piece. Is that or would you call it a side 20 piece? Kermit comes back and he wants to know what Scooter did with the cow because... Kermit's mostly responsible. And Scooter, being very solution-oriented, if a little sociopathic, lets him know that he gave the cow to the Swedish chef. (laughs) Now, if I remember correctly, our last episode featured Kermit getting into it with the Swedish chef as well. And I can absolutely, if you've ever worked back in the back of house at a restaurant, the cooks are going to get pissed at management all the time. And I'm just waiting, waiting for the Swedish chef to walk out and be like, I'm done. I don't care anymore. I don't need this job. They need me elsewhere. No, they don't. But we we go on to the next sketch where we see the chef who's got chalk outlines all over the cow, ready for butchering so they know which cut of meat to take. Yeah, he's marked the cow up for the cuts quite skillfully. He's got a very particular set of skills. Um, cooking is sometimes on them, other times not so much. I'm not so sure he's actually a chef. I would like to see his culinary degree. Where did he study? What are you doing? He's already got him all chalked up, ready to cut him, cut him some ribs and some flank and ready to make some steaks. Really, really, really funny. And he eventually gets him out, though. Scooter, hmm? uh, would you erase that cow? Oh, sure, boss. 
erase the cow? I kind of feel bad for the chef because it'd be one thing if he never had a cow in the first place, but <laughs> to be presented with the cow yeah. and then have someone remove the cow, That's it true. just seems like they're playing with your emotions at that point. He was getting excited. He was making plans. Welcome again to Muppet Labs, where the future is being made today. Well, we are just feverishly excited here at the labs today because our latest invention is ready for testing. Here it is, Muppet Labs' new hair-growing tonic. Poor, poor Beaker. I love how he keeps calling Beaker his willing and eager assistant when he is clearly neither. Yeah. Bunsen is a sadist. There's kind of no two ways about that, yeah. No. But, uh, yeah, this time he's, uh, he's showing off his new hair growing tonic. He brings his eager and his willing and eager assistant out, uh, to test out the hair stuff, which by the way, Beaker doesn't need. What is he attempting to do with a hair tonic on Beaker? Beaker does it. Beaker has hair. I think Dr. Bunsen Honeydew has a secret desire to turn Beaker into actual, into one of the actual monster Muppets. Or is he just jealous? That could be it. Of, of Beaker's beautiful carrot <laughs> orange hair. Let's shake a little bit of this on here, put it down, and massage it in vigorously. Well, yes, now, in just a matter of seconds, you can grow a rich, luxurious head of hair. Go from a baldy to a shaggy in the mere tick of a clock. There. Now watch closely. Here is the result of using Muppet's hair-growing tonic. He puts the hair tonic in, and it blows Beaker's hair off. Which, you know, it makes it more of a hair-raising tonic. Yeah, he says that, and then he gives a little giggle, and I'm like, you son of a bitch. It would be okay, but he, he giggles about it. Poor Beaker, man. Poor we got another We got another three seasons of him getting abused. Oh, it's not just those three seasons. That's true. I feel like Beaker and Dr. Honeydew are part of the template for Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> they, they could be, actually. They could be. Fifteen bucks, little man. Put that shit in my hand. Now we get our flying zucchini brothers. I wasn't expecting to show up, like on screen. I just figured they would be mentioned and not seen for the rest of the episode, but they're part of the solution in in theory, in that uh, they're going to take care of the cow. <laughs> they're going to turn their human cannibal act into a cow cannibal act, which I've never heard of, but you know, could work. I, I think PETA would disagree, but... Yeah. Um, the Zucchini brothers are trying to help, though. They're team players. Okay, now we get it. There's the cow. I'd like to point out the cow still doesn't have any agency in this decision. I think the cow is just full on Zen. Like the cow doesn't seem disturbed by anything that's going on backstage. I mean, you know, a cow doesn't know it's a burger. Mm. Whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid. There's something about the way that this is framed, which seemed interesting. It's a song about confronting your fears. Or it's a song about how sometimes pretending to be brave is as good as being brave. Like the the set is like an urban setting and she's surrounded by all these monsters, including the mutations and sweetums and uh, behemoth. It's uh, um, Uncle Deadly's there. That's right. He did pop up randomly. Yeah, yeah. Mean, mean Mama's there. It's it's a whole gaggle of frightening looking Muppets who seem to be stalking her. She's alone at night and she's confronting these monsters. And she's, I like the, I like the, the I like the theme of the song though. It's yeah. Convinces me that I'm not afraid. I am not afraid. I am not afraid. <laughs> Basically, she's saying you got to fake it to make it. 
You know, if you pretend to be brave, you will be brave. Visually, I agree with you, or, or just the way it's set up, it feels a little sketchy. Yeah, just a bit. And I, like, I mean, it's meant to. It just the end of it as well, where they all come forward and they just say that they wanted her autograph. She's got the best line in the episode, though. Well, I don't happen to have a pen on me at the moment, but uh, there's one at the police station around the corner. Great, come on! I still don't trust these guys. So, Which is fair. I agree with you that visually and with a modern eye, it feels a little sketchy. I don't think it's intended to be that. I don't either. Like, it's it, it probably started from a seed of something and then just went the way that it went. And it, the turnabout with them just wanting her autograph it humanizes the the monsters a little bit, yeah. but which the Muppets do a lot often. Mm-hmm. The Muppet monsters are a majority of them sweet creatures. <laughs> Elmo is a monster. Grover is a monster. Cookie Monster is well, I mean it's in the name, but like, and I wouldn't necessarily call him well. He's sweet. Muppet monsters are generally sweet. Kind of flipping your expectations. It's probably not my favorite of her numbers, for sure. Mm. It's a different side to her. It's a different look for her. She's got this kind of city uh, trench coat she's wearing. And um, it's probably the least kind of uh, Julie Andrewsy. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I still wrote my notes. She's just delightful. <laughs> Even though she's being stalked by these monsters, I was still utterly charmed by her. But uh, it's it's uh, it's fun. I, it reminds me of like there have been other things like this with the there was zero Mostel's fears. Mm-hmm. We joke about it, but it seems like they know that the big walk around Muppets are pretty freaky too, right? Yeah, oh, they absolutely know that. They lean into that. So we uh, we end up backstage for our closing, where the backstage story, which you honestly could have seen coming a little bit. Kermit, I really had a super time on the show. Oh, good. Except for one thing. Uh, what's that? Well, I seem to have lost my cow around here, so... <laughs> Yeah, turns out it's Julie's cow. Just in time to hear the cannon be fired. The Zucchini brothers get their first test shot off with the cow. And then, like, some dude shows up with some hay that apparently she ordered mm-hmm. to feed the cow. Like, it gets real chaotic. I mean, the endings always get real chaotic, but... There's there's something special about this one, though, because it's not the last that we see of the cow. Gonzo, like, post-credits, Gonzo's there with the cow, but it's against a black backdrop. So I'm just wondering, was Gonzo also fired out of the cannon at the same time? Like, did this cow take off with Gonzo on her back, or...? I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, Gonzo, yeah, it, it's it's interesting after they, they say goodnight with Julie. Then, instead of getting the little bit with Statler and Waldorf at the end, we get... Want to go to a movie or grab a steak? <laughs> The cow's wearing a hat this time, though, so she's kind of fancy. Those are her uh, her street clothes. I would say classic episode, popular episode, popular guest star. To me, just one of the highlights of season two. Oh, yeah. This is a great episode. It's the Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Miss J.P. Morgan. All right, so I know what J.P. Morgan is, and I know who J.P. Gross is, but I didn't know anything about singer and actor J.P. Morgan before we started this. I was confused as well. Yeah. Mary Margaret Morgan was born December 3rd, 1931 in badass-sounding Montezuma County, Colorado. Yep. She was one of seven siblings. 
She went to high school, though, in Tahunga in the San Fernando Valley. So apparently somewhere in there when she was young, her family moved to California. Uh, in school, she served as class treasurer, which earned her the nickname JP after the famous banker and his firm. So she was the treasurer. He was a very famous banker. Her last name was Morgan. So they called her JP Morgan. Uh, she also sang in like school assemblies and stuff. Uh, just after high school, Morgan recorded a song called Life is Just a Bowl of Cherries, which was released by Derby Records and ended up charting at number 26 on Billboard. Life is just a bowl of cherries. Don't make it serious. Life's too mysterious. You work, you save, you worry so, but you can't take your dough. That got her a contract with RCA Victor. She had five hits in one year, including her biggest, That's All I Want From You, in 1954. A little love that slowly grows and grows, not one that comes and goes, that's all I want from you. A sunny day with hopes up to the sky, a kiss and no goodbye. That's all I want from you. And that year she got married, and uh, five years later she left RCA and signed with MGM Records. She was a vocalist on the ABC show Stop the Music, which was a primetime game show, which was very similar to the more popular Name That Tune. Uh, and in 56, she got her own show, Hold On To Your Butts, it was called The J.P. Morgan Show, and uh, she showed up on a lot of variety shows and talk shows, you know, like a lot of these guests. In 1961, Jay appeared in an episode of CBS's anthology series, General Electric Theater, which was hosted by rapist and future president who would ignore a deadly disease and kill many Americans, Ronald Reagan. Thank you for specifying. We'll get there. She did a film with Jackie Cooper the next year. Uh, also did an episode of The Joey Bishop Show and a guest role on My Three Sons. Uh, she played herself in an episode of The Odd Couple. She also had a few small roles in movies like Night Patrol in 1984 and Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, which has a special appearance by a rapist and future president who would ignore a deadly disease and kill many Americans, Donald Trump. In the late 70s, she was a panelist on The Gong Show, from which she was fired for flashing her breasts. We'll get back to that. She appeared on a few more game and variety shows, including Hollywood Squares. She appeared as herself in George Clooney's great film Confessions of a Dangerous Mind in 2003, which is a semi-biographical picture about Chuck Barris, the uh, creator of The Gong Show and, and The Dating Game, who claimed he was also an operative for the CIA, even though there's no evidence to that fact. She has been retired for some time now and is currently 89. So... About the flashing thing, I found the clip online. Okay. Uh, it's on YouTube. Uh -huh. It's this crazy moment. So I don't know if you've ever seen the gong show, but there was this guy named Gene Gene the Dancing Machine, and he would just dance. Mm. And so Gene Gene the Dancing Machine is on stage, and the audience is kind of going crazy, and all the hosts and panelists are all kind of partying up and dancing around and stuff. And she's wearing like a, a coat and tie. And they're cutting around, and you see her take off the jacket, and then she kind of pull off the tie. And then it cuts to her, and she just pulls open her shirt. <laughs> Now, they cut away instantly. It's less than a couple of frames. Like, it's less than a Janet Jackson. Oh, is that a unit of measurement? <laughs> I didn't mean it to be. But it's more of a, uh, she shows more, but it's for a very, like, they cut away. It was like the camera, like, it was like the director in the booth was like, whoops. But she got fired for that. But the gong show tanked after she left. So maybe she had the right idea. That was pretty brief, but that's really all I got on her. She was, you know, she did some acting and she 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 uh, put out some songs. I really liked her in this episode, though. She wasn't stuck with the Muppets, though. 
they were stuck with her. But she was also playing it up as though she was definitely stuck with the Muppets. The theme of this episode is the guest star is not having a good time. <laughs> so yeah, episode 218, directed by Peter Harris, produced end of November, beginning of December 1977, aired in the spring in the US and the UK. First of all, this does have a tobacco warning because we're going to see another appearance by our buddy J.P. Gross, which seems inevitable given her name. J.P. Morgan? J.P. Morgan? 15 seconds to curtain, Miss Morgan. Oh, Scooter, I have a little present for you. Oh, gee, thanks. She throws a bomb at him. <laughs> I wrote down Crazy J. Uh, she throws a lit bomb at him and she throws it and then Scooter like sees it and it takes a beat and then he goes, Hey, this is a... <laughs> and it blows up and then she looks right at the camera and goes, This is not going to be just another cute puppet show. I want you to keep in mind the fact she doesn't like cute. There are a lot of explosions in this episode. Oh, yeah. Just out of the gate. And we get another one right away, because as the theme finishes and Gonzo comes out to blow his horn, uh, Crazy Harry blows him up and blows him out of the hole and sticks his head out and laughs. <laughs> Explosion number two. So this part's a little interesting. Um, Kermit comes out to introduce Jay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And here we are again with another one of those things entitled The Muppet Show. And starting off, we are going to do the very first piece of material the Muppets ever did. No kidding, it was a little song entitled Tweedledee-Dee, and we first did it about 23 years ago. But tonight, we have a new and very cute version of it done by our very special guest star, ladies and gentlemen, J.P. Morgan! It's a song called Tweedledee. Before we get into the song... I've been looking all over the place, and I, I checked them up at Wiki, put out an all-points bulletin on Twitter, asking for help. 23 years before this is actually before Sam and Friends. We have very sketchy data on what was on Sam and Friends. You know, uh, we have we have a list of possible episodes and, and things that have been reported. So this might have been on Sam and Friends, this song, like very early episodes, but that's only if their math is wrong. If their math is correct... And that this really was 1954, which is that is when the song came out, by the way. So it would have been a popular song at the time. That could have been something from his WTOP days. That little window between the um, junior morning show and him getting salmon friends. Hi-ho, Chad here again. So I did reach out to Muppet Twitter and Muppet Twitter reached back. Uh, Muppet Wiki amplified my signal asking this question about Tweedledee. Then it, it went to someone named Karen Falk, who then recommended it to someone named Craig Shemin. And Craig responded that all signs point to Tweedledee as the first performance on Afternoon. Afternoon was, of course, the show that Jim did at WTOP after the Junior Morning Show was canceled and before he went and did Salmon Friends. So if that's correct, and that seems to be the general consensus on Muppet Twitter, of which we are now members of, which is pretty cool, it seems to be a general consensus on Muppet Twitter that that was the first performance on Afternoon. That was a live show nearly 60 years ago, so it doesn't exist for us to watch it. But yeah, thanks Muppet Twitter. Thanks Craig Shemin. Thanks Muppet Wiki. It's got uh, J.P. Morgan dressed as a bird, and it also features Shirley, 
who is one of the birds from the Sex and Violence pilot. She was the, you know, bird. She was in the Nancy Walker episode. And this episode, actually, it's not a female, though, right? It's performed by Richard Hunt. It's kind of done in front of a green screen. Yeah, it's it's pretty clearly a green screen. She sort of got the uh, Harvey Corman treatment a little bit. But she plays into it here. Mm-hmm. Kay is singing the song Tweedledee, which is kind of a just silly, cute, nonsense song. But she keeps stopping the song to complain. She's complaining about how stupid the song is, how her costume stinks. Everything down to the smile is super forced. Her whole kind of persona for this episode is going to be someone who kind of doesn't want to be here. So the song itself was written by a guy named Winfield Scott, uh, like I said, in 1954. So if this was made 23 years ago, then this would have been a, like a current song when they originally used it on whenever... They used it on. I could see that being the case, though, because especially in those early days, they were mostly just trying things out as they liked. So the song was a hit for a guy named Laverne Baker, who was a black performer, but it was quickly covered by a white artist named Georgia Gibbs, and it ended up selling more copies, and it actually spurred a little copyright battle between them. It's also been recorded by Elvis, who of course knows absolutely nothing about appropriating African-American art, but so there's a little bit of controversy. Uh, in the history of the song. Although I'm thinking about Elvis singing it, and I'm like, it's, it, it, here's the problem, though. It feels like such a children's song. Tweedly, tweedly, tweedly dee. All right, here we go. Heads for home. Home it is. Tweedly, tweedly, tweedly dee. Dumb. I don't know. I, I didn't love this number. What The only thing I liked about it really was uh, there were two things. I liked her kind of uh, attitude of like, this is stupid. And then there's another thing in here that we haven't really mentioned yet, but it's something I wanted to point out because I read about this in uh, I think it's the Of Muppets and Men book by Christopher Finch. At one point, the bird yells modulate at her. Modulate, JP! Modulate! Woohoo! For her to change the key she's singing in. That's a running joke. Marvin Suggs yells modulate. We're going to have someone else yell modulate later in this episode. That's something Jim Henson used to yell all the time when they were doing their recording sessions. That was like a running gag. You know, what? one of their favorite days of the entire week when they were shooting The Muppet Show was the day that they went to the recording studio and they uh, laid all the music down. And apparently one of Jim's favorite jokes was to yell modulate and it became kind of a catchphrase. And so whenever you hear the word modulate on the show, it's kind of a joke about that because um, we're going to hear it again. So I, I liked the modulate moment. What did you think of this? Like, it was a little bizarre. It was also the uh, the way that the sky was moving in the green screen made me think of some of the old Genesis games that you would play on the CRV. I'll say this. Uh, the effects don't hold up. <laughs> um, I mean, that's okay. It's fine. But the effects are the effects totally don't hold up. I get what they were doing. It felt really awkward. I guess that's part of it. But uh, I don't know. It was... Um, I don't know how to, this number's, and I don't care about weird. I don't mean to like just dismiss it saying it's weird. It just felt a little off to me. So then, uh, but here's where it gets great. So she comes off stage and Kermit's like, that was amazing. And she's like, was it? That that last number was terrific. It was really cute. Yeah, it was cute, wasn't it? (laughs) Oh, it was. It was just so cute. (laughs) And then she, she, you know, she strips down. She just gets down to just her regular clothes. Not like she did on the the gong show. I hate cute. And this is going to be her attitude. (laughs) And then. There's other things that she doesn't like because an animal shows up and she turns out she doesn't like animal either. To be fair, animal's got a limited vocabulary and the word boundaries isn't really included in that. Nah, he's being a little aggressive in this moment. Um, I wouldn't have written it this way, but uh, he really needs to chill. Oh, and she has a great line, though, where she says, uh, I'd like to say I'm really indifferent about being here. (laughs) 
which I thought was great. Like everyone else is like, oh, Kermit, I love it here. And she's like, I'm very indifferent. And Kermit's like, you're, you're what? <laughs> so, so we kind of set up the fact that she's not entirely pleased to be here. He's attempting to crack a coconut. Now, do you know how to actually get into a coconut? I did once. I think you usually punch a hole in it. Yeah, like use like a drill or an awl. I remember there, because like my dad was stationed in Hawaii when I was really little, and I remember people just punching holes in it with something, but I can't remember. I was like a toddler, so. But uh, the chef tries uh, cutting it and sawing it, and eventually he just bonks it with a hammer, which doesn't seem to do anything, but apparently that's what does it. And then he opens it up, and there's a bomb. (laughs) And that's uh, bomb number three. (laughs) So then we go backstage again. Kermit wants to make amends with her. He could tell that JP's not having a good time and him being the consummate host. Think of him as the, the David Laser of the situation. You know, his job is to make sure all the all the guests are taken care of. How's JP? Oh, oh she's fine. She was a little upset because the opening number was cute, but uh, she's okay now. Good. I just sent up a cake to her dressing room. Mm. Wait, Kermit, not the cake that was here on the table? Uh, yeah, why? Ugh. Crazy Harry Beckett. First of all, Kermit, you just found a random cake on the table and sent it in. Like, it's pretty ghetto. And at that moment, Harry shows up on the upper level with his uh, plunger, gives a cackle, hits the plunger, and the door of the <laughs> JP's dressing room just blows off. That's explosion four. And she comes out all charred up and ripped up and, and crawls her way out and just goes... <laughs> Very funny. Every once in a while, we had another episode earlier this year. Every once in a while, there's an episode where uh, where they just go nuts with the explosions. It's like Jim just can't help himself. It's like they, they bottle it up and they don't do it and they don't do it. And eventually he's like, you know what it's time for? It's time to blow some stuff up. To be fair, he's been behaving a lot. He could probably use a pass. Again, JP is not having a good time. She's having a rough go of it so far. She didn't like her opening sketch, and now she's been blown up. So then we're introduced uh, Fozzie. Uh, so Kermit runs up to help her, and so he sends Fozzie out to uh, introduce the next act, which he does a pretty good job. Usually he fumbles this, but he does a pretty good job. And he introduces Gonzo's act. And what Gonzo's going to do is... A trumpet solo... Flight of the Bumblebee. That does it, I'm leaving. Gonzo's used this music before. Uh, when he ate the rubber tire in season one, it was also to Flight of the Bumblebee. I looked this up because I wanted to know. So, The Tale of Tsar Sultan is an 1831 fairy tale by the great Russian poet Alexander Pushkin. This song was written in 1900 by Nikolai Korsakov from his opera, The Tale of Tsar Sultan, which featured this piece of music. I've known this piece of music like my whole life, but I had no idea what it was from, so I had to look it up. So it's a it's an, it's an opera adapted for a Pushkin poem um, that had this, and this is the most little famous piece of music from it. So they start playing it, but then Animal... <laughs> That animal comes in because it's the Muppets and we have to be literal. So there's literally a bumblebee that animal is chasing around. He's got a cl- he looks like Captain Caveman. To be fair, I think animal's trying to help. He's trying to kill the bee. I don't know if he's doing it for others, <laughs> but he is trying to kill the bee. And he comes in and he swings at the bee and the first one knocks the, the lid of the piano closed. And then he starts beating the hell out of Rolf and Gonzo while trying to get the bee. I would like to point out that this sketch goes poorly, not Gonzo's fault this time. Oh no, Gonzo's doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. This is all Animal's fault. It's it's really funny though, just slugging people with this club. <laughs> Starts hitting the piano, Rolf's like ducking, so eventually it all goes to hell. You know, the trouble with women is they always take things personally. I don't. 
The trouble with men is that they're all too wishy-washy. Well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. So then we're at the dance. I, I call this one men are from Mars, women are from Venus. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. Yeah, there was a board game for it, I think. <laughs> oh, a book, everything. It was it was like a craze for like six months. But uh, we have uh, we have an at the dance and uh, every one of the jokes this time is that there's a couple and they're kind of complaining about each other. Yeah. And then there's a punchline to go with it. The trouble with you is you can't take criticism. Oh, that's a low down rotten lie. What do you mean I can't take <laughs> One of them wasn't fair because one of them tells uh, uh, was that she tells uh, her dance partner that he's always sticking his nose into other people's business. But then he turns his head and he's got a giant schnoz like that's not his fault my favorite one though was when uh it's very clearly frank uh controlling both puppets and the man says uh trouble with you is you conceited i am not although i have every reason to be but it was very obvious both voices were frank because the woman sounded exactly like piggy now the highlight of the episode for me is actually the uk spot now this is weird this number, which is Fozzie and Rolf playing English Country Garden on the piano. This isn't the first time they've played a duet on the piano, though, if I remember correctly. So when they released The Muppet Show on DVD, they put this in the Elton John episode. That's probably what I'm thinking of. Yeah, okay. it's not part of the... It was never part of the episode. They just put it on there. But it was actually the UK spot in this one. So it actually showed up twice. It's the exact same kind of spot. Okay. But it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Hi-ho, Chad here for the last time. We're not going to rehash our conversation about this sketch in episode 207, Culture is Culture, about the Elton John episode, and you can hear us kind of breaking down what we liked about this sketch, but uh, no reason for us to go over it again here. Okay, last time I'm going to interrupt, I promise. So then we get the talk spot. Yeah, the talk spots are coming back. You're, you're right, they really weren't there the first half of the season, but now we're starting to get more of them. Maybe they looked at them, because I, you know... As much as I didn't love the talk spots in the first season, I did find, I think I mentioned earlier on this season, that um, I was missing them a little bit because I felt like we weren't getting to know the guest stars enough. Mm -hmm. um, so Kermit and JP talk about how – talks about how all the um, – she brings up the fact that there are all these explosions on the episode tonight. Kermit admits – and this is Jim admitting it – that it's one of their trademarks. But it's good, it's good to hear Jim admit it. <laughs> and then what follows is a kind of funny sequence of Kermit exploding – and then reappearing on the other side of the screen. It's obviously just done with two uh, Kermit puppets. Getting in touch with his inner Nightcrawler. <laughs> he really is. You're right. He's bamfing around. Can we talk about JP's hat for a minute? She's very famous for her hats, she says. That's a pimp hat. I I know a pimp hat <laughs> when I see a pimp hat. It's 1977. It is not not an iceberg slim hat. There's a very serious sense of affected cool. We understand that her biography is a little bit sparse, but... I didn't find anything <laughs> about her early street life. I'm, I'm just saying, like... It is definitely a pimp hat. You're not wrong. Pimping's not funny. <laughs> Here, how about this? In practice, in practice, pimping isn't funny. Okay. But it, her wearing a pimp hat is pretty funny. Uh, but it's also rigged to explode. And then at the end, they both, uh, they end the spot by blowing up themselves and vanishing. Completely nonsensical, but very Muppet. So I've got four explosions so far in this one. There's like probably another four. Yeah. I think. At least, because Kermit does at least twice. He does twice, and then her hat does, oh, that's five, because he does it twice, and then her hat explodes, and then they both explode, so that's five. Mm -hmm. Now, this next number, I have a very, like, strong association with the song. It just surprised me to see Floyd and Nigel teaming up. I think it's because just Nigel looks like a whistler. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so Floyd and Nigel come up to sing, come out, and they sing Big Noise from Winnetka. <laughs> Two, three, four. 
is a song from 1938. It's a weird piece. It's instrumental and improvised between like a, it's got like a bass line and then there's scatting and then there's whistling. And it was originally improvised at the Black Hawk Club in Chicago. It's kind of a big band swing era classic. It was actually created during a live performance of the Bob Crosby Orchestra in Chicago. Now, I know this song because it is used in Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull very effectively. If you're a Scorsese fan, there are at least a dozen, if not more, songs that are tattooed on your brain, and you cannot dissociate them from the movie. And so I immediately recognized it. I thought it was great. Floyd's just doing his bass thing and scatting, and and yeah, and Nigel... (laughs) Comes out in his little suit and uh, whistles the, guess you would call the melody. Uh, the song was also used in the 1982 adaptation of the Steinbeck novel Cannery Row, the movie version with uh, Nick Nolte and Deborah Winger, I think, of uh, one of, I'd say, Cannery, uh, that's a good Steinbeck novel. It's not my favorite Steinbeck novel, but it's not bad. I'm finally reading that biography. I need to start that. So good. I've got to pick up a copy of The Winter of Our Discontent, too, because I think that's the next one I need to read that I haven't read yet. That is my favorite novel. Indubious Battle's up there for me, but I haven't read Indubious Battle's fantastic. I think on uh, Rate, I think East of Eden and, and Grapes of Wrath and some of his bigger books are more powerful and more impressive. But uh, Winter of Our Discontent's a small book, and it's about it's it's really good. It's a nice piece. It did. It didn't really stand out in any specific way. Whenever Floyd gets down and gets to play some jazz, I'm down. <laughs> and now, pigs in space, starring the fatuous Captain Link Hogthrob. The recalcitrant first mate, Miss Piggy. And the describable Dr. Strangeport. When last we left the spaceship Swine Trek, it was in serious danger as it plummeted towards Earth at an alarming rate. Because it's too heavy. They need to get rid of somebody. And, and apparently it has to be one of the pigs. I don't know why they can't just jettison some. Now, here's where it breaks down to me. So Strange Pork is like, we have to get rid of somebody. Not you, Link. Of course not you. And Link's like, oh, of course not me. And he's like, not me. I know how to use all the switches and stuff. But who do we throw out of the ship to to save ourselves? And of course, Piggy walks in, fresh from doing the laundry, because apparently they're still making her do that. But there, we know there's other people on the ship. We've we seen do. Them. We also know that they don't want to do their own laundry. So <laughs> that's true, too. <laughs> I didn't think about that. It's sort of a self-defeating premise, not counting the fact that she's got a famously violent temperament. Strange Pork excuses himself out of the conversation uh, because he does not want to be privy to he does say he does uh, was he, he says he does say bon voyage to Miss Piggy <laughs> but there's an amazing moment where he says you know or links like we have to jettison something and Piggy's like oh and you want me to help you decide and he's like no we've already decided and she goes well what and he goes mm-hmm. <laughs> and he just kind of like and she completely un- and she's like are you out of your mind <laughs> you're kidding me and then while she's talking, he pulls the lever, which we've seen before, pulls the lever to eject her. And then he yells, was it? Not cool. But on brand. We've seen these levers before. They don't eject you. They just make you pop up in another seat. We've done this before. And so Piggy pops up in the seat on the other side of Link. And uh, 
I mean, you can guess what happens next. It starts in high, ends in y'all. <laughs> yeah, good pigs in space. Very funny. It, worth it to me just for that moment where Link can't get the words out. And Peggy totally knows what he's going to say. We're starting to see a trend with the newsman. So the Muppet newsman comes in and reports that a plane carrying the London Symphony Orchestra has been forced to drop some of its musical instruments. Guess what happens next? Some of the musical instruments. He gets hit by a piano. Now, he should be dead. If the bowling ball didn't kill him, the piano would absolutely kill him. But this is two weeks in a row. It's been a plane that has to drop something, which is funny because we're coming off Pigs in Space where the exact same thing happening. So I guess it's a runner. I mentioned him earlier, but we're going to get a little bit of uh, wordplay here, a little bit of confusion. So because Scooter's uncle, J.P. Gross, shows up making another inspection. Now, this doesn't track because he's already decided that the place is falling apart and that it's not worth his money to tear it down. So he already knows the place is a piece of crap. I don't know what the other inspection is for. I feel like he's not a very patient man. But this was just a couple of episodes ago where he was like, eh, it's better to let this place fall down. But he's going to inspect things and uh, and uh, he leaves Kermit. Goes off on Scooter, talking about how much he hates JP. Oh, not JP. I don't think I can take it. Of all the people I can't stand to have around here when we're doing a show, JP is the worst. <laughs> I mean, JP is without a doubt the most difficult, impossible, unfriendly. Of course, while he's doing this in classic comedy style, JP Morgan walks up behind him. And so she hears him complaining about JP and, of course, thinks it's about her. Kermit gets busted. Oh, hi, JP. Oh, uh, 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 JP. Uh, when, when I said JP just now, I didn't mean JP, JP. I meant JP, JP. You know what I mean? No. And of course, while he's talking, JP Gross walks up behind him and he gets caught in a anger sandwich. But JP Gross, the man who owns this theater, is the meanest, stingiest, most heartless person I know. <coughs> Mean that as a compliment, Frog. Yeah, I was about to say, JP. She puts her arm around him. <laughs> there's no supporting Kermit. There's nothing else. He's just like, oh, now that I know that you weren't talking about me, I still hate. Um, and then Kermit, of course, laments that he thinks he just put both feet in his mouth, which I would argue is not true because he is still standing. Physiologically impossible. For this next sketch, I just wrote down in big letters: Law and Order. Ladies and gentlemen, today I talk to you of crime. He's going to give a speech on crime, but as he's giving his speech on crime, everything on stage is being stolen by a group of whatnot thieves. Everything up to and including Sam himself. But <laughs> I like when they tap him on the shoulder and he looks around and they steal his podium and then they steal him. It's just a character being oblivious while uh, he's complaining about crime and everything around him is being stolen. I think they've kind of uh, locked into this groove with these Sam pieces, you know. Mm -hmm. They found a template. So then we go backstage again, and uh, JP's had a rough time at it, you know. She's, she's been beat up. She's been bombed. He's insulted her. So he wants to make sure that her big closing musical number is going to be great. But JP Gross overhears and is like, It's a perfect song for JP, that old black magic. I only hope JP will do it. Ah, if the price is right, I'll do it. <laughs> Always wanted to sing. Then he asked Kermit for a contract. <laughs> Which is savvy. Because he knows everyone else is working for free. <laughs> so he's like, listen, I'll sing for you, frog, but you're paying me. You don't pay the bear. You don't pay the pig. I'm sure you don't pay that little weirdo. That little Skeksis over there. I'm sure you don't pay him. So uh, while Kermit's trying to explain to JP that he didn't mean this JP, he meant the other JP, uh, Scooter comes out and introduces JP Morgan for the final act. And we get that old black magic. 
Yeah, with Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. Now, we've heard this song before on this show. One of the dozen or so Salmon Friends episodes, the only episode of Salmon Friends that survives that actually has the title character in it, him and Kermit doing old black magic. It's automatically kind of hits your Muppet heartstrings. Um, they also have done this on the, on the Today Show. And then on the Tonight Show in 1974, it was performed by... Uh, a character named Hamilton Pig and another pig named Piggy Lee in her very first appearance. So, so this song has a very thick Muppet history. And uh, Sharon Sweetums actually sang it on the Share Show too. So it's it's definitely a favorite. It's another Johnny Mercer song. We, his name keeps coming up a lot as a songwriter. It was a Glenn Miller made it a big hit. But uh, this I thought was great. I don't know. I really now. First of all, her dress is the shiniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it's very sparkly. I was watching this with my daughters, my wife, my nephew, and my mother-in-law, and all the women in the room went, "Whoa, that's a dress." <laughs> Is this the first time we've seen Dr. Teeth in the foreground like this? In this capacity, yes. Like singing with the guest star. I think so. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, he's very... I guess he just figured Dr. Teeth's voice would work better for the number than Kermit's would. For you're the love I have waited for. So so it's still Jim doing the duet with her. This is where she really gets to let loose. Um, and it's just a pretty straightforward musical number. But a good one. Song's awesome. I, I think Dr. Teeth was definitely the right choice. I agree. Like, there's something about his gravelly Dr. John hip voice that really worked. Um, the song is very swinging. And she seems to be having a really good time. I think even her shoes were sparkles. I had sparkles. In a spin, loving that spin I'm in. Under that old black magic collar. Under that old black magic collar. We come out to say goodnight, and JP's like, You know, I've been blown up, beaten up, insulted. Everything's happened to me, but I've had a great time. I mean it. Oh, well, it it tends to be like that around here. She kind of drops the ruse. Well, it wasn't cute, so... Right, it ended up not being very cute. And, you know, they say goodnight, but then... (laughs) Then J.P. Gross comes out. (laughs) He's ready for his close-up, Mr. Kermit. And now for my first song... I'd like to dedicate this to all the boys down at the J.P. Gross Collection Agency. Now, damn it, that money can't get enough. Just keep sending that green He dedicates his song to the J.P. Gross Collection Agency? Because, <laughs> of course, this is a guy that would own a collection agency. Of course. Just like the worst type of people. And um, so uh, Eddie starts singing a song that I don't think is a real song. He just starts kind of like singing about money, but not like in a Beatles way or something like he just like we kind of close out. Everybody comes out on stage, but we close out with uh, J.P. Gross, not J.P. Morgan, but J.P. Gross uh, serenading us with a song about how much he loves money. I didn't know anything about her. I knew her name was a pun. When I saw her name listed, I legitimately thought that we'd be looking at the guy that founded a bank. And I was like, all right, Jim. (laughs) Nereyev worked out. Let's see what you can do now. 
Next time, cigarettes, whiskey, and wild, wild women. Coming up, episode 119 with the incredible but insufferable Peter Sellers. And episode 120 with international recording star Petula Clark. I know more about one of those people than I know about the other. I've heard one of those two names. And by <laughs> and by that, I mean, I know a lot about one of those people and nothing about the other. <laughs> Listen, when you research Peter Sellers, you're going to find out that he was a real son of a bitch. Okay. Brilliant. And one of the stars of, in my opinion, the greatest comedy of all time. Mm-hmm. A comedic genius. But I don't think you're going to be able to do your research and not find out he was a real mother. Good to know. But that'll be next time. So until then, uh, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. Take care. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. I wonder if anybody watches this show besides us. Besides me. <laughs> <laughs>